I wear many hats. I, I act as a social worker. I'm your friend. Mm. I give you, I'm like your motivational speaker. I'm your insurance adjuster. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm your technician. I am, you know, people call me for, uh, people call because they need somebody to talk to. Hi, this is your host, Dr. Richard Marn, and you're listening to Health Careers with Dr. Marn. This show is for students and advisors, or anyone interested in a health career, and we pull back the curtain of the many health career opportunities out there. We learn what it's really like to work in various health-related careers as we interview professionals from various fields. So far, we've been very fortunate to have some guests who are just so passionate and excited and energized by their job. Today's guest is no exception. In fact, I would dare to say he's probably one of the most passionate guests I've had on this podcast. In fact, most people will not seek out this professional unless something unfortunate has happened to them or one of their loved ones. But for those who do need him, what he does really helps change the trajectory of their life. So our next guest is Mr. Abe Matthews. He's an orthotist and prosthetist. And I know most of you will not know what (laughs) what that means, but as you listen, you'll better understand what he does for people whose life would be a lot worse without him. Originally from New Delhi, India, he moved to New York City when he was a young child. He got his biomedical engineering degree at NYIT as an undergrad. He then went to Drexel University to get a master's in biomedical engineering. But during his master's degree or his coursework, he was accepted into the prosthetics and orthotics program at University of Connecticut. And so left the master's program to really pursue his his goal, which was to be a prosthetist and an orthotist. He currently works at Progressive Orthotics and Prosthetics, and he's been there for several decades. And again, if you like what you are hearing in this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app or device. Otherwise, let's jump into this episode. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, I have a, I think, a very interesting guest, uh, Abe Matthews. Uh, welcome, Abe. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for joining me all the way from um, Long Island. No problem. Anytime. <laughs> this is an easy commute via telecommunications here. <laughs> yeah. Um, as some of them, uh, most of you guys don't know, I was introduced by Abe by uh, one of my previous guests, Todd Bryson. And so um, I'm really excited to hear about uh, what Abe does. Abe, can you tell people what you do and what you're responsible for. Yes. So my name is Abe Matthews. Uh, My title is CPO, Charlie Peter Oscar. That stands for Certified Prosthetist and Orthotist. And I always tell everyone that's a tongue twister. But I do prosthetics, which are artificial limbs. And I also make orthotics, for mostly for children who have uh, disabilities. Since you mentioned both, prosthetist and orthotist, are all orthotists Prosthetists and old prosthetists, orthotists, or they no. can exist separately? No, they can exist separately. I did both to become, number one, more marketable, have more knowledge, and I can treat the whole body. And I use experiences from both fields to uh, help treat uh, many difficult cases. I see. But they are two separate entities. schools and entities that you have to go to school for. Okay. Right. 
right. Yeah. There are people that are CEOs. The, the, the population of certified orthotists almost triple the amount of just certified prosthetists. Oh, I see. So orthotists outnumber prosthetists. Yes. I see. And so what do you spend most of your time on? So uh, pre-pandemic, which is what we're going through right now, yes. I did much more orthotics, 70%, 30%. And that's because I treat children in schools where a, a, a simple clinic session at a school between hours of 9 and 11, I can see up to 15 children. Currently, I'm not seeing many children at all, maybe right. 10 a week, and they're all oh, coming wow. to my office. So those children are really suffering. They've all regressed in their uh, abilities, and uh, it's a very, very tough situation for them. And what population is pediatrics for you? Uh, about 85%. 85%. Yes. Yeah. And, and what age range are we talking about here? Um, I see infants. I've even seen children in the NICU, which are like newly born to uh, 18, and then they become adults, and I see them through that time. But there's a, there's a tricky age between when they become teenagers and don't want to wear a brace and don't want to mm. be you know, looked at by their peers differently. So there's an awkward age in between when they don't want to wear bracing, but that's a time that they regress and surgical intervention sometimes happens and uh, becomes complicated. So what kind of problems do you help people out with as a prosthetist as, and also as an orthotist? Okay. So a uh, prosthetist, I mainly help with artificial limbs patients who've had their legs amputated due to various diseases and or accidents, trauma. And I do below-the-knee prosthetics. It's called transtibial. Above-the-knee prosthetics called transfemoral. And it's labeled by the major bone that they cross. Mm -hmm. um, then I do a lot of uh, below-elbow prosthetics. Above-elbow prosthetics, most patients do not... Um, have good compliance with them because they're difficult to use um, and they just find it easier not to wear a prosthetic. Although there are several, many, many uh, successful users, but they have to be fit in the right time. I see. So that's, that's prosthetics. That's prosthetics. As an orthotist, what kind of problems are you dealing with uh, in that situation? My biggest patient population is cerebral palsy. Children that have had some kind of infarct uh, during birth. Mm -hmm. uh, I treat children that had had a in utero stroke. They had a stroke while they were in the womb. Yeah. And they come out and they find all these, all these developmental delays. And then we find that, hey, one side of the body is not working appropriately. They have all these muscular issues, tightness. Uh, there's, there's so many things. Can't sit upright. Neck tightness. Head shapes. It's a scoliosis. Unbelievable uh, amount of issues that we have to deal with. And it's a uh, and it's a very tough situation because a child cannot talk back to you, cannot tell you what's going on. Mm. So we're treating the parent usually, but doing the best we can for the child. What is your typical day like? Now, I know we talked about pre and post pandemic, but let's, just to make it easier, let's think about pre pandemic. What was your typical day like? Okay. So um, usually every day I see at least three to four children and mostly do in a school. And I go to schools that have completely disabled children. This is specialized schools. Specialized schools, right. right. So you, no one would know about them unless they have children with special needs. Children with special needs go to special schools, and then they later on uh, get into normal schools and into normal uh, school life. But during the beginning, they need utmost care. At those places, I see a child, just to give you an idea of what I do with a child. Yeah, we do an evaluation yeah. with either a physiatrist, who is a physical medicine doctor, and the child's physical therapist, 
and or occupational therapist. And together we have a team and we call it the clinic team and we do an overall assessment of the child and or any patient in reality and uh, come up with a plan to best help that child, either if it's for standing, if it's for just for sleeping positioning, mm-hmm. for treating scoliosis, um, whatever the case may be, what that child presents with. And that can happen all morning. I always take a lunch break. Well, I try to. I'm usually driving from one clinic to the other. And then in the afternoon, I usually see all my prosthetic patients in the office because prosthetics are very involved. And I have to, I have a full laboratory in my office where we make the prosthetics. And if I need- You actually make it yourself. Yeah, we have technicians. I don't uh, do a lot of the nitty gritty, but uh, we were trained to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, we need to see the patients more and the, the technicians help us fabricate. I see. So you kind of direct them, you kind of help design it. Yes. We design it by hand, actually. Yep. Yep. So that's yeah. why every prosthetic is designed specifically for that patient? Every prosthetic, no matter if I've seen 25 transtibial amputees, every single prosthetic is different because we take a hand-molded uh, cast of the limb, of the residual limb, whatever's left. Okay. And same with the children. Same with the children. I take a hand... I, so uh, in my time, I started this in back in 95, okay. I started in this field. Um, we were taught in school to take molds. So we are very technical with our hands. We do everything with our hands. We don't take many measurements. This is the old school. I'm, I feel like I'm an old schooler, although I'm only 46 <laughs> right now. Listen, um, you don't because, have to reveal your like, age on a podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's totally fine because I, you know, what we see coming in the future is a little different. So yeah. You know, we didn't take any measurements. We did everything by hand, feeling the limb, yeah. feeling what the body is like. And then when we go back to our lab with that mold, um, we get our hand back on it in the plaster model. And then we know where we were at that point three hours ago when I took that mold. It puts me back in place. It's almost like an art artwork. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's, not, it's amazing. It's, it's a, not so technical in terms of, okay, it has to be exactly this measurement per se. No, no, no. And although I am an engineer by trade, I'm a biomedical engineer. Right. Uh, that's where I studied. And then I went to clinical practice into orthotics and prosthetics afterwards. But yes, it's very art, art, art-wise. It's very, I, um, I wear, I'm the only one who wears a lab coat at work because I'm very vain. <laughs> I try not to get dirty. We work with plaster. Our shoes are covered in plaster because we go out to a patient, we clean them up. We see the patient, take a mold and we come back and we have hours to modify the mold which we use all these types of sculpting yeah. tools and we're sculpting a plaster mold. That's the prosthetic part. Even the orthotics part as well, are you also designing by hand as well? Yes, yes, by hand. And, and it's even more difficult because most orthotics, children are getting two. So we always have to make sure one foot is never the same as the other. So people can use digital CAD cam and things like that nowadays. Yeah. And they try and make them exactly the same. However, the kids are never exactly the same. Their feet are never exactly the same. Are you using 3D printing at all in this? In this? No, I mean, there, there is a lot of dabbling in it currently, but 3D printing, the filaments cannot handle body weight so well. So people do it, and then they wrap it in fiberglass as if you had a fracture. Mm-hmm. That fiberglass, they wrap it in that to give it uh, stability. But you cannot adjust a, a 3D printed mold. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah, so it makes things complicated. And what, how you do this work, you would say this is also how other practitioners do across the country? Um, my, my old school guys, yes, we do it that way. The new school guys are not so much. They do it a little differently. They do a lot of things by measurements, CAD CAM, computer design. 
not so much hands on. Yeah. Versus um, almost like engineering way. And this is a this is a very biomedical, physiologic. You need to touch, feel, and see what the child can do, or what angles you can push them into before just designing something. I see. I imagine when you design something, you put it together, put it on the patient. It doesn't work. You may have to redo it again. Yes. Does that happen a lot? It doesn't happen a lot, but some children, like right now during the pandemic, have regressed. I'm actually currently treating a child who. Um, did a three mile marathon. She's a, she has mus- muscular dystrophy yeah. and she goes to Florida every year and she does a three mile marathon and uh, she's an amazing kid. She's in college right now and uh, doing everything she needs to do. So I've been seeing her pre pandemic. She was doing fantastic, fantastic. Hasn't got to therapy in three months. Her angles of her feet are so bad. I can't even get her standing. She can't even stand up. Hmm. So it's funny because her mom called today and said, Abe, I think we're ready to take a new mold of her legs. I spoke to the therapist a few weeks ago. I said, hey, her feet are not in a good position right now to cast her. If I take this mold now, it's going to be for no use. We can't do anything with it. She will not be able to walk in these. So I said, go back to intense therapy for three weeks. Come back. We'll get you standing and get you back to where you had to be. It's very, very tough. And that's part of the feedback with your team members, the other collaborators, other clinicians. Absolutely. To not just say, hey, I'm just going through the motions. I'm just going to make something. So she has it. You want to design it for the right time, right. at the right moment. And and being you know in the field so long, I have no problem telling a doctor or a therapist or an occupational therapist, whoever it may be, this is not the right time. Yeah. Let's, let's wait it out. Do the right thing. And another big, big uh, concern with that is insurance. If I make something today... And I know it's not going to work. What's going to happen in three weeks when I have to get her something new? The insurance company is going to say, you just made something. Why would I want to cover it again? Mm-hmm. You have to do these things at the right time, when it's necessary, and to help the patient at their maximum potential. Got it. Uh, what misconceptions do people have about your career? People think we take things out of a box and put it on a patient. People think that prosthetic limbs are made in a, outside of our office. They're fabricated by somebody else that doesn't know the patient and we take it out of a UPS comes at 11 o'clock. We take it out of a box and we fit it on the patient's leg. That is number one. They think everything is prefabricated and it goes on everybody. Number two is people think prosthetics are very expensive. They are expensive. However, I, uh, doctors have asked me, how come a prosthetic limb is $40,000? I was like, okay, how about let's, let's talk about this. I'll give you $40,000. Let's cut your leg off. What is it worth to you? They're like, oh, you're, it's the price of a Lexus, a prosthetic limb. It's something you can't put a price tag on to give someone back their independence in their life. Wow. Is it the same for your um, or braces as well? Is it also economically also very, very expensive as well? They are expensive, but nowhere close to prosthetics. And bracing, especially since I do children, they outgrow them every three to four months, five months, six months. I'm remaking them. And the cost is so much less because it's just different types of plastics that I use and different types of joints. But prosthetic limbs are very expensive because of the technology that we use, the microprocessor units that we use in some of the uh, applications, yeah. uh, the carbon feet that we use to return energy, shock-absorbing feet, the gels that go on your limb to protect you from the prosthesis. There's so many more factors, although it looks very simple. And obviously, when you're losing a limb, you want to give function back to it. So I presume there's a lot of, it's not just the form of it. It's also the motion, say, of fingers. You want to return use of those digits. 
uh, I presume you also have to put in some electrical components. Yes. And, and and how does it communicate with the rest of the brain? Do you guys have to factor that in as well? Right. So I'll give you a perfect example. I have a young guy that came in about four years ago. He had a he works at a dry cleaning store. He had a burn injury to his arm uh, below his elbow. His arm was so burnt, it looked like it was put on a barbecue, and it was just filleted. Mm. Skin opened up. Doctor called me and said, hey, this is the picture of the limb. What can I do with this? I'm like, there's no choice but amputate. Give me enough length, and I will get him back to at least a functional state. Because he had workers' comp insurance, he was able to get the best money can buy. And we did microprocessor uh, hand for him. And believe it or not, he was able to function his hand because he researched, researched, researched. And we had him come to the office three to four times a week to get his muscle memory back. Because now he had no fingers. He had lost his arm below his elbow, right at the forearm area. Right, right. And we put electrodes on him and we ran a computer program. Okay. And we were able to, it's almost like a game where he was able to fire muscles and make things happen on the screen, like graphs going up and down, a car going through slots. There's many different things we can do to train. Like we even train children like that. We play games with them, say, hey, fire this muscle and watch watch the car go up or fire this muscle, watch a car go down or left and right or up and down. You know, it's very, very intricate. But what happens is when you don't, when you overthink things, your muscles get so tired that you can't function anymore. And it's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And that guy went back to work and he's working at the same place where he lost his arm. <laughs> and he comes in all the time. He breaks everything, which is okay because we can fix that. Right. If he breaks his sound side, I can't do anything for that. I can fix his prosthetic any day, all day. I see. When you, I'm sorry. What do you mean he breaks things? He he is so active at work. He breaks his thumb of his prosthetic all the time, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably put thirty thumbs on him already <laughs> in the past four years. <laughs> but he's able to do the same work as before. Yes, same work. And we made we got him two different hands. One is a. Um, it almost looks like a claw where he can two different hands. Yeah. So we got one that's very functional. Every digit moves on his hand. Okay. And it's got 30 hand positions and it's called gesture control is very intricate. It's hard to say it in a podcast, more like a video. If I showed you a video of him functioning, it's yeah. unbelievable what he can do. All right. And, and we made him a custom silicone glove where you cannot tell that he's wearing a prosthetic hand. He goes out for dinner with his girlfriend and he's wearing his prosthetic hand with the silicone on it. And you cannot tell that he's wearing a prosthetic until he functions it. When he goes to dinner and holds a glass, you see the difference in motion. Obviously. Yeah. 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 So that's one. You said that's you have two hands. Yeah. So he has two. So he unplugs that one when he yeah. goes to work and he wears uh, it's called a grifer. It's just basically a claw. And that latches down onto the various things that he does. So he does certain machines. He needs to hold a handle and he claps that down. Because the other hand is so intricate with all the fine movements that he would break it all the time. I see. I see. It's more of a work-related um, yeah, yep. uh, tool. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Got it. I think it's already coming out in what we're saying, but what is the most rewarding part of this job for you? Oh, my God. This is not a job. Number one, I can't even tell you. Every day I go to work, I never, ever, 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 and not many people can say this, ever think it's a job. Every day is different. Every patient is different. Every patient's story is different. And helping someone get out of a chair, standing in an orthotic for the first time, having the first child, the child move a few steps, mm. first time their parent says, oh, my God, is this the first steps? It's amazing. I have a little boy that I just fit a prosthetic leg to. At one years old, I fit his prosthetic leg. 
I think last week his parents sent me a video, his first 14 steps independently wearing a prosthetic <laughs> leg. And when I tell you I shared it to the whole office, everybody's in tears. It's just you hear mm. parents screaming in the background, oh, my God, Thomas did it. He did it. He did it. You cannot take that back. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling. We cry at the office all the time. Patients come out mm. of a wheelchair. They stand up for the first time. And it's like we're all in tears. It's an amazing job. Amazing job. That's awesome. You guys got to get a lot of tissue paper at your workplace. Yes, we got plenty. We got plenty. We got plenty. Um, I mean, that's great to hear. But is there a least favorite part of your job too? Yes. Or your career? The hardest, the hardest part of our career is seeing little children, uh, patients in agony of what just happened to them, the traumatic events of what happens. To, to think about, you know, you're a new parent. I had a new parent today in the office today. Yeah. They're two-year-old. Uh, was diagnosed as hemiplegic. The one side of her body does not function. Yep. So she can barely walk. She does not use her left hand at all. Totally ignores the left side of her body. And uh, seeing those things and mom's coming to me and crying is like, can you fix this? I, it's a very tough thing to, I, I, I cannot fix it. I can help make it a little better mm-hmm. and help her in her life down the road. But I can't fix that. That's going to be a lifelong wearing a brace on her foot maintaining her range of motion, keeping her elbow extended, trying, teaching her to use the other side of her body. Kids like that sometimes don't even see the left side. Like if you can imagine uh, riding a bicycle with one eye closed, you have no perception of that one whole side of your body. Yeah. So life becomes very tough. Prosthetically, um, a hard thing is, you know, patients don't have the greatest of insurance and they excel in what they can do. They want to go to the gym, but they're not going to be able to get a prosthetic that's going to support lifting 300, 400 pounds. And, you know, I, I would hate to say this out loud is, but we donate a lot of prosthetics to people because who am I to say you can't have something? Luckily, um, we do well in our company where we give back a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. I just fit a double amputee at the hospital during COVID. Um, no insurance. And what, what was I going to say? What was I going to do? Say no, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Mm. So I made her two prosthetic legs. I gave it to her on a Friday. She got discharged Monday because she had no insurance and she went home and now she's going to follow up with me in one month, but she's walking. She lives alone, mm. no spouse. And her son is away at college and it's a very, and her son didn't even know she had the second amputation done. She didn't want to burden him. Mm. You get really deep into people's lives, huh? Uh, you have to. You I, you know, I wear many hats. I wear many hats. I, I act as a social worker. I'm your friend. Mm. I give you. I'm like your motivational speaker. I'm your insurance adjuster. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm your technician. I am. You know, people call me for. Uh, people call because they need somebody to talk to. And uh, it's sometimes us. Today, I have a woman in the office. She's uh, she's blind. She became a below-the-knee amputee, and she's big into dogs. She had a dog when she was young. She lost her eyesight to diabetes. There's many complications to diabetes. Oh, boy. And a wonderful, wonderful woman. And I put a dog on her prosthetic, and it's actually a dog of one of the uh, guys who I work with, and the dog's name is Rex, and she shows everyone her prosthetic. And meanwhile, she's 100% blind. Wait, wait, wait. You put a dog in her – We put a dog – In her prosthetic? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so – so it's actually a picture of our coworker's dog, okay. which we designed into her prosthetic. So there's a picture of it on it. So she tells everyone this is Rex, and she shows <laughs> her on her leg. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and she's 
wonderful lady and I have to walk her around to, to teach a patient who is completely blind to put a prosthetic on, mm. get it on properly and ambulate. And she only ambulates with a cane, which is amazing. And she's, I, I want to say late sixties, early seventies. Wow. Good. Amazing. Amazing. For you, what is your work, work life balance like? Is this a kind of a career where you're working on weekends, working late into the night? Uh, how would you describe your work-life balance? No, my work is amazing. I work uh, – I always tell the owners of the office I'm a part-time employee, but I do everything I can and do it part-time. <laughs> <laughs> so I go in, I go in at 8 o'clock, um, get prepared for the day. Patients start at 9, yeah. and I usually get home by 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock. But if there's an emergency, I am at the office at any time you need. If a patient breaks his prosthetic or her prosthetic, I am there to fix it. I will go back to work at any time of the day. I don't care. doesn't matter to me. All right. Wait, Abe, that's, you make me want you to be my prosthetist. Prosthetist <laughs> or orthotist, if I ever become disabled in that sense. My goodness. No, gosh. No, no, no. I never want to see that happen. Um, would you recommend this career to students? Um, I definitely recommend this career if you are someone that is good technically, good hand skills, understand physiology and engineering, mm-hmm. engineering. There's a lot of components to it. a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors. So this, you know, I did biomedical engineering as my undergraduate and my grad school that led me into, um, you know, that helped me get into school. This uh, profession is very difficult to get into. There's only eight schools in the nation that offer uh, schooling in prosthetics and orthotics. Really? There used to be about 15, but um, the, the lack of funding uh, stopped that. But uh, I had to go to school in Connecticut. I went to the I went Yukon with the Newington Children's Medical Center, and uh, okay. I used to work here. I went to school, did my residency, and while I did my residency, I went back to school for my second uh, discipline, which was orthotics. I did prosthetics first. I used to go to work at six in the morning, go to work until three p.m., drive to Connecticut, start class at five p.m., finish by eleven p.m., and drive back home. It was crazy. It was crazy, crazy, crazy. I thought I was going to fall asleep on the highway multiple times. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Yeah, not but, a good thing. But you were actually a prosthetist for several years working, but said you said, I want to get go to more schooling. So you had to go to Connecticut. And so while you're working a regular job, you went afterwards. Yeah, so, no, so I'll give you I'll give, right, so I'll give you the timeline. I went to uh, New York Institute of Technology undergrad. Okay. Finished there. I went to Drexel for my graduate program in biomedical engineering. Right. During my second year of biomedical engineering, I've always known I want to do prosthetics. Really? And I'll tell you that story too. Okay. Um, as I was in my um, starting my second year of uh, Drexel University, I applied to these schools because it's so difficult to get into. And I, I felt I needed more engineering classes under my belt to get in. I applied in my second year and I got in. So I left my second half of my uh, master's program and I went right into the UConn School of Prosthetics. That was full time. First year was full time. I was up there. I lived in Connecticut, in Hartford. So you got rid- you dropped your master's program so you could get into the school. Yeah, because I was uh, I was the first interviewer and the first one notified I was in. I was like, all right, I'm done because this was my goal anyway. Got it. This is exactly what I want to do. So why waste money and finish up something that where I can start now? Got it. And I don't want to put my life on hold. I wanted to get get moving. I had a plan. I had a game plan. Got it. I've always had a game plan. And uh, what I finished my first year in prosthetics, and we have to do a one year residency in each discipline. So when I finished my um, prosthetics education, yeah. During my prosthetic residency, I was going to school for orthotics as well. So I was working as a prosthetic resident, and I went to school for my orthotic 
uh, education. And then after I finished that, then I did my second residency. I see. And then took our boards. Yeah, took my boards. Is the education process much different from when you did it to what it is like today? Um, I believe what you actually learn and how you do things are different because of technology, but we still learn the same things. That is all the same. It's, you know, it's just like learning the basics, but we learn everything we need to know. But what about in terms of number of schooling to get into prosthetics and, and orthotics? Yeah. So now the um, prosthetics and orthotics program is a master's program only. There is no uh, bachelor's in it. Before it was uh, just a postgraduate degree is specialized to prosthetics and orthotics. So most people who go into this field have some kind of biomedical undergraduate exercise physiology, physical therapy, engineering backgrounds. And you really need all of it to be really good at it. But people come in here with a physical therapist came in and, and they know so much about the body. They do really well in prosthetic school. They know the body. They know what it should do. I had to learn that in school. You know, some people do this as a second career, which is amazing. It's amazing. People, Some people in my class were in their late 40s when I was in my 20s. I see. And how long is the master's program? One year for each? What? No, it's um, now it's a three-year program. It's one year prosthetics, orthotics, and then your master's. All, all together, it's three years. So most people are getting combined uh, degrees? That's pretty. That's becoming the standard now. That's, that's the standard now, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you how I got into the field. I'm sorry. But yeah. uh, I'm Indian. Born, I'm from South India. My okay. parents are born in South India. So, you know, in the Indian culture, you can only be a doctor or an engineer. That's it. Really? That's, that's you know, <laughs> you, you know how it is with us, you know? So my dad, when I was 13, 14 years old, my parents sent me to the hospital to volunteer because I need to know what the hospital's like because I got to be a doctor. Mm. And I push around amputees to the physical therapy rehab clinic as a volunteer. Yeah. I was like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a prosthetist. I'm going to make prosthetic limbs for somebody. And uh, I figured engineering was a pathway. I'm the oldest of my cousins, so I actually had to figure it out on my own. I didn't know what to do. Right, right. So uh, I went to biomedical engineering undergrad, biomedical engineering, and then I got accepted into that program. At the time I got, uh, applied at for my prosthetic school, they had 500 applicants and 22 spaces. So I got in. So it was great. So I was like, I'm out. I'm going to do this. And I got in, and uh, that's it. Worked out great. Is it that competitive still? Yes. That's uh, that's very that's very competitive. Wow. Yeah, and some people don't get in, and they try again. It's almost similar to like going to med school, where people take a gap year, then they go work or do volunteer work somewhere, and then they go back in and apply again. Oh. Do the a lot of the uh, techs that you work with, um, the prosthetic techs, did a lot of them eventually try to also become? Um, Prosthetists. Prosthetists and orthotists. So, some of them do. And back in the days, I'm saying like in the 80s, people were grandfathered in with X amount of hours yeah. without the actual clinical education. They were because they were so hands on. Oh. They were like, you know, they were making prosthetic legs out of wood back in the days, you know, and they learned how to fit because they were actually seeing patients as well with the prosthetist. They took X amount of classes and they got grandfathered in. But today, I don't see many technicians going forward into prosthetics, into the clinical practice. Some people can't handle it. You can't see a residual limb or a cut limb that's oozing from an ulcer or things like that. People just can't see those things. It makes them you know, ill to see those things. And it's scary. It's scary. And it's not like people are in good spirits when they're seeing you. Absolutely right. That's exactly. I go to bedside post-operatively to a patient and I see them and I'm the guy there telling them they're going to walk again. And I've had people kick me out of the room. They're like, I don't want to talk to you. 
I don't want to talk about a leg. I don't want to talk about anything. My life is over. I'm basically going to die. So leave me alone. Mm. And I have to stay there. I have to stomach that. And I'll say, you know what? I'll come back tomorrow. And I've done it. I've called them. I, that's why we're us and our patients are very friendly. We're very good friends with our patients because we promised them something. And I, I promised them that I'm going to get them walking again. Yeah. And that's yeah. why that's, that's my job is to get them walking again. Well, you also see them, a lot of them at the start. Yeah. You know, when they're at the bottom oh, gosh. of, you know, whatever they're going through mentally mm-hmm. and psychologically. And you see there, you're kind of, um, they're, you're the, you're part of one of their partners in, yeah. in trying to traverse this, this devastation um, in their life. Yeah. Especially if they were healthy in advance. Exactly. And most people are healthy in the beginning, but then the number one reason for the amputations is diabetes and no one realizes how bad diabetes is. And, these things happen so often, and if you have a, one amputation, the the chance of having a second amputation is in less than five years. Most likely, going to have a second amputation, mm. and that's that's tough to deal with. And when and because of the internet, every patient is self-diagnosing themselves. So they're like, "Oh my God, I'm going to lose a leg. Then I'm going to lose a second one in five years. It's not worth living." It's a very tough room to walk into when they already know what they you know what they perceive as. Got it. Yeah, it's very, it's a, uh, I had to, sometimes I have to tell patients to opt for amputation. They have their legs. I was like, your leg is not in great condition. And if you get an infection, you can die from this. You have to take your leg off. Mm-hmm. How do you tell someone to cut their leg off? Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest things you can tell someone. Yeah. They're actually giving consent for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just had a patient two weeks ago, 91 years old. 91. 91 years old. She fell in September, hurt her leg. And has a, a vascular insult, so she's not getting good vascularity or uh, blood flow to her leg. Okay. It's slowly turning black. And uh, she went to the vascular surgeon. The vascular surgeon called me and said, Abe, can you call the patient? Can you just tell her what prosthetics are all about? After about an hour and a half conversation with – she's 91 years old. <laughs> and her daughter, who's in her 60s, she said, you know what? I should probably cut my leg off. I can't live like this anymore. I've been crying in pain every night since September. That's not a quality of life. It's not a quality of life. And uh, lo and behold, last week she had the amputation done. So it's my job to make sure she walks. I I told her all the things that we can do. And if her mind is there, I'm going to help her walk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely have to be in good spirits when you see them. You can't be like um, negative and depressing. Yeah, no, no (laughs) way. Not Not helping things. Not me. Um, Yeah. Uh, about what do you think the future outlook is like for your profession? Um, so technology is not booming as fast as you would think technology is booming. Like, like the Apple iPhone every year, there's a new version. Okay. That's not what's happening in technology uh, on the technology standpoint. There are still feet and, um, liner systems that I used back from the early nineties that still work tried and true. They work. Why isn't it moving forward technology? Because insurance companies are beating us over the head. They will not pay for technology. Really? They want to know why. They want to know why. Why do they need this? Why do they need that? Why do they need to go jogging? Why do they need to go back to the gym? Why do they need to go swimming? Why do they need a prosthesis to stand in the shower? Every, every, every insurance claim is a battle. Everyone. Hmm. Insurance companies want to hold their money. They don't want to give it to you. So it becomes very it becomes very tricky. We have to choose the right path for our patient to enable them to get what they need and when they need it. People come in, a patient today said, I want the best prosthesis. You just had your leg amputated. What is the best prosthesis for you? We don't know yet. Let's wait till you're healed. 
and we know what you're going to do with it. It's like people telling me, he's like, oh, I want to, uh, I want to run a marathon. I was like, you never ran a marathon before. You're not going to do it because I made you a prosthetic. It's not going to happen. This is baby steps. You got to take your steps. You got to prove to me what you can do. And I will make you what, what is optimal for you. Abe, uh, reflecting back, would you have done anything differently? <sighs> Thinking about uh, the only thing I probably would have actually, no, not in reality. No. I just spent, I spent a lot of money in school, especially at Drexel. It was very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that little portion, but the experience and people I met there, and I did a lot of affiliations while I was there at Drexel, even if it was for a year and a half. It was something I can't even put on paper. It was amazing. My whole career has been amazing. And I thank God for that. It's been, it's been a great ride. Suffice to say, you're very passionate about what you're doing. And I think, uh, obviously, a lot of patients are benefiting from your drive, and your your really desire to want to help them. Uh, before we sign off, I want to go through some, we didn't do this with some other guests, but I'm starting this new thing where I'm doing Uh-oh. this uh, you know, fun, <laughs> lighthearted thing. It's called some rap, rapid fire questions. Okay. All right. Go for it. Keep your answers, if you can, to one sentence or just a short answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, place you most want to travel. I've been a lot of places. A lot. My last trip was to Greece. That was last week. I canceled for coronavirus. So I'll say Greece. Greece, okay. Yeah. How many hours of sleep do you need? Five. What's your favorite car? A Porsche. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Can you touch your toes without bending your knees? No way. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. You're 46. (laughs) (laughs) I'll pull a hamstring. You're crazy? (laughs) Um... What's something you could eat for a week straight? Pizza. Do you like Disneyland? No. Do you believe in organizing your life or letting things just happen? Organizing my life. And finally, mm-hmm. describe what would bring you the ultimate happiness in life. Seeing my kids flourish. That's awesome. Abe, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. If people want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? Actually, it's funny because... Uh, you know, uh, when I left one company to another and, and, you know, we can't really, we can't market our patients. I was like, you know what? All you got to do is Google me. And, you know, I never realized how powerful that is, but that's uh, basically our calling card nowadays, you know? So if you Google me, it's very simple to get me and it leads you right to my office and you can see videos of all the cool patients that we see. Okay. There's five practitioners in the office. We have a small private practice, five practitioners, 12 of us total in the, in the office. And, uh, we see quite a few patients and we make everything in the office. So it's a really, really awesome thing. We actually have, uh, we in conjunction with the uh, physical therapy students, we give them a tour and explain to them what happens. They come in for a lecture to our office. We do lectures for physical therapists in our office, about new technologies and how to get our patients uh, to the next okay. level. And uh, Googling me is the easiest All way. Right. I mean, people can just Google me and then call my office, reach out to me, email me. My email's on there. And uh and I'm happy to talk to people because this is not for everybody. This is a this is a very very difficult job if you're really? not if your mindset isn't there. And I've seen um, many people get into this field and get right out of it. Your and you said on your website you have some videos that people can see what you do. Tons, and you can see my little kids running around in their prosthetics. It's awesome. It's awesome, <laughs> and it really gives you a sense of what you can do with a prosthetic. It's amazing. All right, they can educate themselves too just by visiting your website. 
wonderful session. I'm so glad that we finally connected. I hope I was informative and interesting and uh, not boring at all. <laughs> Definitely not boring. Thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, everyone. That's our show today. To learn more about today's guest or the topic mentioned in today's interview, visit healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Of course, if you like what you heard on this episode and the podcast in general, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast app or device. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time.